Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Sunday, May the 21st. And today we're going to be talking about Mexico. Uh, We do a lot of conversation about Mexico with our friend George Rodriguez, who follows the border quite closely. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about Mexico and, and joining us or the interior of Mexico, some of the politics of Mexico. And joining us uh, today is Keelan uh, Dillon, who is a contributor to Pulse News Mexico. Uh, at, from time to time, we've had the editor of that uh, website on our program, Therese Margolis, as well. So, uh, Keelan, welcome, and it's a great honor to have you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. All right, and I understand you were originally from North Carolina. That's that's your, yes, your hometown? Yes, Absolutely. I'm from Durham, North Carolina, but I've been living in Mexico for about six years now. All right. Very good. And uh, what what uh, what do you find? I mean, you, you came to Mexico, Mexico City, right? Is that where you've lived mostly? or? Yes, um, purely in Mexico City for the past six years. And do you enjoy, I lived in Mexico City four years, and one of the things that I enjoyed doing was taking these little day trips around Mexico City. Do you like to do that? I do, absolutely. There's so many wonderful places to see and visit nearby. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to travel around Mexico. There's so many incredible sights to see. You know, my favorite part was the churches, all these little town churches around. uh, You would drive a few hours away, and there was a book. I don't know if this book is still around, but there was a book that you could buy at Sanborns, you know, the famous place. And there was a book that was written by an American woman who had a story sort of similar to yours. She went to Mexico and stayed in Mexico, and she wrote this book called One Day Trips Around Mexico City. Now, this is before GPS, and so she would actually have all the maps drawn out, you know, turn right here, turn left here, and it was really a a cool guide, you know, to get around. So I remember, I think I, I, I did half of the book, because it was so exciting on a Saturday morning, you could just get up and drive and, and see all these little places and all these little towns and so much of the culture of Mexico that obviously you don't see in Mexico City because Mexico City is more more cosmopolitan, more international. So I I thought that was the fun part of, of living around Mexico City. And, and well, my favorite part was going to San Miguel Allende. I thought that was an absolute... Have you been there to San Miguel Allende? I have been there, and there's an incredible expat community living out there as well. Yes, that's that's exactly what I discovered uh, as well. So just just some very pretty areas. 
Now, speaking of Mexico, I, I know we're going to talk about Mexico, but I saw in the news today that one of the volcanoes uh, was acting up a little bit and they had to shut down uh, the airports for a while. Did that impact you at all? Um, it didn't personally impact me, but I did have some family members who were supposed to fly out yesterday and because of El Popo breathing, as they say, lava and smoke into the air and it clouding the visibility, unfortunately, their flights were canceled. Um, it's been quite active this past week after being dormant for a little while. So it's been very interesting to see how it's been affecting the air quality and just day-to-day -day life for people living in Mexico City. Yes, I, I was there four years and nothing ever happened. You know, I was hoping that something would happen one day, but nothing ever did. But I do remember from Tecamachalco, uh, there was like a little hill. And as you were going up the hill, you, could, you had a really good view of, the, of Popo, you know, the, the volcano. And on a clear day, it was just a beautiful sight on a, on a clear day, just sitting right there on a beautiful day. So is it supposed to stop or is it supposed to keep going? What's the forecast? Um, I believe it's still supposed to continue spewing off smoke and lava, but I'm not sure there's any way to truly tell um, when the activity is going to stop. It has caused some small little earthquakes around the Mexico City area, nothing too extreme, but that's the most we're really feeling it out here. Well, the other thing I saw, too, in the news was that some of the schools in some of the little towns around there had closed, which makes sense. I mean... Uh, the, the ones closer to Popo itself, they had closed the schools. So, well, we wish everybody well, but I missed uh, the volcano. It didn't happen when I was there. And I always kept wondering, gee, you know, I would love to have an experience. I, you know, I lived in earthquake. I, I experienced an earthquake. I experienced a, a tornado here in Texas. I uh, experienced a hurricane. Never, never a volcano. So I guess that's one experience that I that I that I missed, uh, but it's got to be. Does it make a lot of noise when it when it goes off, or is it just sort of kind of quiet? Well, it's about an hour and a half, two hours away from Mexico City, so you can't really hear it from here. But I would imagine that close by, you can hear some of the lava spewing. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, we'll keep an eye on on that story. Well, let's talk about uh, what inspired me to contact you, and that's an article that you wrote at Pulse News Mexico about fentanyl and Mexico. And it was based on a story that appeared in El Universal by a gentleman named Mr. Lopez who wrote a story uh, and he was creating the connection between, you know, the fentanyl coming from China and then uh, I guess being handled in Mexico or manufactured or put together in Mexico. And then, of course, traveling to the United States, where it's a really hot issue. I mean, this is a major issue up here, particularly in the high schools. So uh, was that the first story you had written about this? And, and just kind, of, kind of what attracted you to this story? So I do have some personal experience with acquaintances who have unfortunately passed away from accidental fentanyl overdoses. So the story is very near and dear to my heart. Um, Previously, I've only really covered the tensions between Mexico and the United States that are growing over fentanyl because obviously it's a, a very hot-button issue between bilateral relations. Um, 
But this story in particular really stuck out to me because this is one of the first investigative pieces that is really tying together how the cartel brings in the materials to manufacture uh, fentanyl, as well as you know, some really eye-opening accounts from members of the cartel about just how that is done and how it's able to get into the country. And it comes in, uh, as the story pointed out, it comes in through Acapulco, I guess, or one of the ports. Acapulco, I think, is the one that he mentioned. And then it goes into the interior. Now, a lot of people in the United States, as I'm sure you know, uh, a lot of people have been saying that this was going on. They've been criticizing or saying through, particularly a lot of the of the senators and representatives have been saying that this is in fact going on. The Mexican government had denied the connection. They don't deny that fentanyl goes north, but they had denied the connection to to China. So a story like this, when it hits a major newspaper like El Universal, what, what was the reaction in Mexico, Keelan? Um, well, it was very, very well received, um, the reporting, because you can really see actually what's going on. There's photographic evidence. There's an actual account with a member of the cartel. It isn't just hearsay. There is direct proof that this is what happens. And what's actually interesting is that the report showed that the fentanyl doesn't, or the materials to create fentanyl doesn't actually arrive in the ports of Mexico. What happens is the chemicals are shipped in these drums that are attached to the GPS device. And before the ships reach ports, because now the ports are, and customs at the ports, are all um, carried out by the Secretary of Defense. So you don't, of course, the cartels don't want the military finding their chemical products on these cargo ships. So they push them out to sea, and they hire fishermen to come pick them up using the GPS locators. And then the, they take them to a safe location where then the cartel sends small planes to pick them up and fly them into the country, into land. So it doesn't seem as if the chemicals actually make it into the port. Now, there have been a couple of busts, I believe, at the ports, but that's exactly why the cartel is attempting to circumvent that by dropping the drums into the ocean with the GPS devices. Wow. Yes, and, and, and it's interesting because that you know people here were alleging, I mean, they were publicly saying that this was happening. And uh, the last time that President Biden was with President uh, Lopez Obrador, when they had that that meeting, you know, of the three, the Canadian, U.S. and and Mexican president, uh, Lopez Obrador sort of dismissed this whole pot, this whole thing. He said, "Well, no, that's your problem. We really have nothing to do with it." Uh, so, has he been confronted in one of his famous press conferences uh, with a story like this? He's been postured a few questions about it, but his trademark style is to deflect um, against questions that don't really fit his narrative. Now, to this day, he is still placing the blame for fentanyl production outside of Mexico. Um, as recently as, I believe, May 5th, he pointed to China as culpable for fentanyl coming into North America, however, still denying that that production takes place in Mexico which 
the Navy actually busted a very large fentanyl lab in Sinaloa uh, just last April. And they found, I believe it was 120,000 kilograms of fentanyl pills, which in a manufacturing lab, one can easily conclude that that was manufactured in Mexico. But despite these findings, he still has yet to publicly admit and acknowledge that Mexico is accountable for manufacturing fentanyl. Yes, and that's the problem. I, I think, you know, everybody understands, and I'm the first one to admit it, that we have a, a consumption problem, so we're the market. Nobody's denying that. But the, by not acknowledging that it's coming into Mexico or being processed in Mexico, then I think it makes it difficult for for the politicians on this side to take Lopez Obrador seriously. Hopefully this will change and the two countries can work this out because I don't really see, I mean, I look at it from, I don't have kids in high school anymore, so I don't have that problem to deal with on a daily basis. But I look at it more from the standpoint of our, of Mexico itself and the United States. And I look at, you know, the, having all these criminal elements within your country engaging in something like this, this, this cannot be good for Mexico. Uh, you know, again, accepting the blame for consuming up here, but the mere fact that these factories are in Mexico, this is not good for Mexican sovereignty. At least that's how I look at it. I, I don't know if you agree or disagree with me. Right. I absolutely agree with you. Um, Mexico has to take accountability. The tensions between the U.S. and Mexico are at an all-time high, given AMLO's resistance to really cooperating with U.S. intelligence forces on dealing with the cartels at the base level, and then, of course, addressing the fentanyl trafficking issue. So without Mexico really taking accountability for the problem, it's only going to worsen tensions between the two countries. And considering that Mexico is the United States' number one trade partner at this moment, that would be really, really bad for Mexico if that's put in jeopardy, all because the president doesn't want to take accountability. Right. And and one would think, you know, if, you know, if you're López Obrador, you know, given, like you say, the, the economic relationship between the two countries, the fact that we are neighbors, I mean, you would think that López Obrador would use this as an opportunity to really do two things, improve relations with the United States. He needs that. But it will also clean Mexico of some of these uh, criminal elements who are not just, you know, bringing drugs to the United States, but who are participating, for example, in the trafficking of people. That's another issue, too. That's not what we're talking about tonight. But that's another big problem uh, that we're having people who come over here and then, you know, they're still economically committed to the people who brought them over. They put them in these houses where they cannot get out until they pay. I mean, it's it's a horrible humanitarian story. So one would think that this would be a great opportunity for, for Mexico and the United States to work together in something that would improve both countries. Uh, uh, unless I'm missing something, I don't see how this helps Mexico at all, Keelan. Absolutely. I would think that collaborating on eradicating the cartels or at least addressing the issue at its core would be mutually beneficial for both countries. But one of the issues is, is that Lopez Obrador 
is very staunch that Mexico should remain an autonomous country. And he, his pride seems to unfortunately get in the way of understanding that it's damaging to Mexico to not collaborate with the United States on this. It could actually cause Mexico to be, you know, infiltrated by the United States intelligence without, um, without its approval because it refuses to collaborate while there's still an opportunity. But right. before too long, that opportunity could be taken away. That's right. And, and I think the anger on this side has risen to such a level. Um, I don't think President Biden would take any radical steps, but I think if there was, a, a, and I, more than likely there will be, I think a Republican president in January 2025, and the pressure is really building in the Congress uh, to do something. They just passed a, uh, the, the, the House Republicans just passed a, a bill in the House addressing the situation on the border. And there were several Republicans who wanted to include in the bill uh, the ability to declare the cartels as terrorist organizations. With that, that would really change the relationship between Mexico and the United States, because that would mean that the president of the United States, with that designation, would have the ability to use drones or fighter jets or the authority to, let's say, uh, use the same techniques that are used against ISIS or Al-Qaeda in, in other parts of the world. And there are many, many people in the House who want to do that. They weren't able to do it this time because I, I think some of the Republican leadership didn't want to go that far. But if Mexico doesn't cooperate, I can tell you, I sent you some articles about what's happening in our high schools here and the number of, of you know, the anger level in the high schools because these drugs are being, the marketing technique of these, criminal elements is absolutely amazing how they're bringing those drugs in and how they market them. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, these people know what they're doing, Keelan. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's, it's very concerning how effective they've been, especially at targeting younger people, but hopefully in terms of the Mexican presidency and federal government taking this seriously at the same time that the U.S. presidential uh, presidential elections will be going on in 2024, Mexico will also be electing a new president. So hopefully with two new presidents in, on both sides entering office at the same time, they will both be incentivized to collaborate and work together. So that's my hope for the future, but time will tell what will happen there. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I, I hope that can be an opportunity to, to bring about a new outlook. Because what's happening right now cannot continue. I mean, it's, it's unsustainable uh, what's, what's happening right now. Anything else that you would like to say uh, to, to address this topic that we've been uh, talking about? Anything else that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you? Um, well, I do think one thing that is very important to address is that there does seem to be a lot of misinformation about the effects of fentanyl on first responders, which I think has resulted in a lot of overdose deaths that could have been prevented because there have been proven studies that show that fentanyl cannot be absorbed through the skin or it would take around 200 minutes of breathing fentanyl, the highest concentration in the air, 
for it to actually even have a therapeutic effect, let alone have an, the effect of an overdose. Now, many of the reported incidents of first responders who have seemed to have a reaction to fentanyl have reported heart palpitations, dizziness, things that are akin to panic attacks because there is this narrative out there that just being exposed to fentanyl touching it could kill you. Now, that kind of hesitancy in first responders could actually cause them to not intervene in overdoses that they could prevent. So I think shifting the narrative around what fentanyl actually is to the consumer, it is lethal, it is deadly, and it is something that needs to be stopped. But one of the best ways to prevent these easily avoidable deaths is having our first responders aware of the fact that being around someone who has consumed it and is overdosing is not going to affect them. To this day, there is no confirmed toxicology reports proving that any first responder has had an overdose or overexposure to fentanyl. And I think we need to reset the narrative so that the people, the consumers who are being affected by it can actually have their health concerns addressed so we can nip this in the bud. That's interesting. I, I Thank you for sharing that. I, I was not aware of that. I know that um, many of our schools have gone on almost like a wartime footing when it comes to uh, fentanyl and, uh, you know, the teachers and the nurses and, you know, the people in the school are, you know, very well prepared. I mean, they have all kinds of medicine uh, in the school to address. I know recently there was a, there was a young girl in, in a very in local high school here, a sixth grader or seventh grade girl who was coming out of the bathroom and fainted and was having an attack and, they were able to save her life uh, simply by having the right, the knowledge of what they, she had, I don't know if she had taken something in the bathroom or the day before, I don't know, but uh, they were able to, to save her life. There were others, another high school nearby uh, that they weren't so fortunate. They, they, they actually lost uh, a couple of, you know, 16, 17 year old kids. And so at least here in, in the Dallas area and the Texas area, uh, the governor and the legislature have been really good at addressing this and making sure that the schools have all the resources in the public schools. And in the private schools, they've also been very proactive in dealing with it. So uh, that, I think, maybe has prevented some, you know, some more casualties, I I don't know, but there was a very interesting case. I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, where a police officer, a woman police officer, stopped a man in the car, and she was exposed to fentanyl and fainted. And thankfully, there was another policeman nearby, and they were able to get the ambulance right there, and they saved her life. So I, I don't know how that happened, but but you're right. The, I guess to... to to second your point, there is a lot of confusion as to maybe how to handle it or how to deal with it. And I think you're right. I think having more information on this uh, would be helpful. I mean, I, I look at it from the perspective that I don't have any kids in school, so I don't have to worry about directly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you have friends. I have three little, three little grandchildren, two, three years old. 
And, uh, you know, you're always scared to death that something could happen to them or they could be exposed to it. Of course. It's affecting the community. It's affecting the entire nation. I mean, it's exacerbating the opioid crisis in a way that we haven't seen before um, on a street level. And that's very concerning. And as long as it's being manufactured in Mexico and trafficked into the United States, it's going to continue. And it needs to be stopped at the source. Absolutely. But as long as it continues to be trafficked in, if we can have those preventative measures put in place in public places, if we can shift the narrative about on education around fentanyl, and also if we can put fentanyl test, make fentanyl testing strips more widely available, of course, that's walking a fine line because you don't want to encourage drug use. But if people are going to use drugs, you want to make sure that they're not ingesting fentanyl. So it's a very fine line, but people need the resources and the education to make sure they are making the right choices and, you know, avoiding easily preventable deaths. Right. Let me ask you one last question, because uh, are there, is there any consumption of fentanyl uh, with young people in Mexico? Has that become a problem down there? So things here aren't quite as well, uh, well registered, as well documented as they are in the United States, at least when it comes to toxicology reports. There have been some instances in Sinaloa of people showing up or turning up dead with syringes in their arm and toxicology reports showing fentanyl in their system. That also um, has happened in a very cartel-dominated area. That happening in more metropolitan areas, such as Mexico City, um, there haven't been as many widespread reports, although I am sure that there are instances of that happening here. But because fentanyl can be flipped for so much money in the United States, I believe in that report we were talking about from El Universal, one kilo of fentanyl can be manufactured for around $2,000. But if it makes its way into Los Angeles, it can be sold for $12,000. And then if it makes its way all the way up into New York, $35,000. So the incentive to get that product out of Mexico and into the United States is much higher than it is to distribute it within Mexico. That being said, there certainly are instances, but it hasn't been as prevalent or as well documented as in the United States. Yes. The money, the money behind this is unbelievable. I mean, that's uh, you're right about that. The money behind this. Well, Killen, I want to thank you so much for giving us uh, your time on uh, tonight. And I want to congratulate you on your good work at Pulse News Mexico. I check it every day. And I I had seen some of your articles before as well, but this one really caught my attention. And I just want to commend you for the great work that you do. And I hope that we can invite you back some other time to talk about some, some other stories, not just fentanyl, but other things happening in Mexico. We here in Texas are very close to Mexico, obviously, not just culturally, but we have a border And a lot of those trading figures that you're talking about between the United States and Mexico are really between Texas and Mexico. Uh, Texas is, I think, well, Mexico is the number one uh, trading partner for for Texas. And I'm sure uh, we're probably the biggest state, maybe California also. But we have a lot of trade. I mean, a lot of a, a lot of activity. And I mean, I've been on the border many times and for years, and it's a very vibrant and healthy border. 
with a lot of dollars going north and south, a lot of business going north and south, and that's the way it should be. Unfortunately, the now it's become a lot about drugs and people. By the way, let me ask you one more question. Uh, now that I mentioned people, what 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 does the uh, you, maybe you haven't written about this, but what do Mexicans think of these caravans crossing their country, uh, going to the United States? Uh, what what are you hearing from Mexicans as they're going through the country? I'm I'm curious. Do you hear anything? Um, it's an incredibly complex issue here. There are many many people um, from Latin American countries who have legally migrated to Mexico, escaping issues in their home countries. Then, of course, there are these caravans of migrants coming through. And it's very complicated. There's a bunch of varying opinions on the issue. Um, But one opinion that seems to be fairly unanimous is that what's happening with the National uh, Migration Institute here in Mexico has, they have not been handling things well. I'm not sure if you saw the report of the fire in Ciudad Juarez um, a couple of months ago, where just poor, poor safety measures, poor security measures caused 40 immigrants to die that they didn't need to. And while, of course, there's many, many issues with having an influx of foreigners who are without a home and are without work just sitting at the border, Um, Mexico also needs to step up and do a better job at not only containing the crisis, but taking care of the people who are in their charge. Well, thank you for sharing that because, uh, yes, I'm familiar with this Juarez incident. That was a big story uh, because a lot of the people who unfortunately died were Venezuelans. And there were many Venezuelans here in Dallas who were pretty, pretty angry about that. But when, when these, Individuals are in Mexico. Uh, I'm sure you remember that under Trump, he created a program called Remain in Mexico. And the the net effect of Remain in Mexico was that it it destroyed the incentive to really go to Mexico because most of these people don't want to be in Mexico. They want to come to the United States. So if you force them to remain in Mexico, then they're going to go back to their country. They're never going to come in, in the first place. But now that they are in Mexico waiting, what what do they do? I mean, can they work? Do they get social services uh, if they get sick? And can they go to a public hospital, Keelan? To tell you the truth, I'm not sure about the exact logistics behind it. I know that they are taken care of by the National Migration Institute, but um, they don't have the same rights as actual residents of the country do. So there's just a constant, a mass concentration of people just sitting, waiting, hoping they can get into the United States. But on that same note, there were plenty of caravans that were passing through Mexico, even when Title 42 was enacted under Trump. So while the incentive wasn't as prevalent, I still believe that many, many, many people came to Mexico and remained in Mexico in anticipation of eventually getting into the United States. Right. And, and, you know, we, we saw that from up here and we kept asking the question, what are they doing? Who's feeding them? Who's taking care of them? Because there were a lot of children, as you know, involved in, in these caravans. And we, we would look at the caravans and say, OK, what, what are these people going to do? I mean, even when they get up here, that's an issue. That's a big issue. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you're following 
uh, what's happening in Chicago and in New York City, where the locals are getting very angry because they don't have the resources to take care uh, of these people. So there's got to be a better way of handling this. Uh, I don't I don't know the answer, but there's got to be a better way. And, you know, maybe simply following the asylum rules might be a, uh, a better way. A lot of them come from Venezuela, and I know they ask for asylum. And that's okay. I mean, their, their request for asylum is probably going to be granted. But the way the Biden administration was doing is you get to the border, they give you a ticket, and then you have a meeting with a judge at some time in the future. Well, that could be three or four years. What are you going to do for three or four years? Okay, I mean, that's crazy. What are you going to do for three or four years? You really cannot work. Uh, you, you're you not going to have access to to medical services. So, I mean, it's a problem that we've created up here. And if you look at Absolutely. again. Well, go ahead. Apologies. Um, I know the Biden administration specifically has put forth some um, – some immigration stations in the countries where most of the migrants are coming from. I know specifically in Colombia, in Venezuela, they have set up stations where people who are looking to seek asylum in the United States can begin the process from their home country. So rather than them needing to push towards the border and concentrate at the border in hopes of getting in, they can actually begin and facilitate the process in their home country. Is that a full solution? Absolutely not. But isn't an incentive to stop people from traveling to the border and concentrating there? It's a step in that direction. Yeah, it, it also takes away the, you know, the trafficking trafficking of people, which is another issue. You know, there are these people are paying because I've spoken to some of them, and they are paying to come up here, and they're not. It's not a cheap trip. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've heard. Uh, two or three thousand dollars sometimes you pay just to to bring you up here that that's a lot of money uh for many of these people well again Keelan, I want to thank you so much uh for joining us you've given us a lot of information, and as I said, I'd like to have another opportunity to chat with you in the future and keep up the great work that you do at pulse news uh Mexico and I want to wish you the best on on a personal level there in Mexico City. I hope that uh which which is the time of the year that you like the best? I used to like the rainy season. What what about you? I enjoy the rainy season, too, and actually it just kicked off about a week ago. Yes, I used to like it. I used to like it because the air was so clean when, Absolutely. when uh, during the rainy season. Everything was so green, and the air was so clear that I – that's what I was saying. You could see popo during the rainy season because everything was so clear. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. And thank you for your participation. And uh, again, my best to you in Mexico City and my best to you in all your writings at uh, Pulse News Mexico. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening. Well, this is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas. Uh, that's our guest, uh, Keelan uh, Dillon, uh, Pulse News Mexico. And we, you know, I recommend that website to everybody. They do some great work. And, and they just feature a lot of good information about Mexico. And I check it every day. And sometimes I've used some of their links uh, to write some of my own stuff. But it's just a great website. And this is a very complicated problem, like Keelan was saying about uh, the immigration. And But we, we need to come together. Mexico and the United States need to come together and figure out what we're going to do about the fentanyl because the tension between the two countries 
is just getting greater and greater. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye, everybody.